Before we start this show, just a word from our sponsor. 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest that pro wrestling has had to offer. Along with their awesome line of pro wrestling apparel, they do offer many services. In the world of wrestling, there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads. Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. If you would like to discuss possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or whatever, drop them a line. Go to 20 by 20 apparel. That's the number 20 X, the number 20 apparel.com. Now let's get to the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bum me, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yelling what it goes. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kicks, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my asses. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And on Fresh of the Word, we like to deliver wisdom through the great stories from the minds of bright creatives of pop culture. Through those stories, we like to dissect the journey of our guest and present actionable lessons and advice for our listeners, no matter what career or avenue of artistry they pursue. And this is episode 124. And this episode's guest is comic book author and editor Erica Schultz. I first met Erica at the Motor City Comic Con in Michigan last year where I picked up a copy of her comic book, 12 Devils Dancing, that was released through Action Lab Entertainment Danger Zone. Schultz, in recent times, authored on both the Charmed and Xena Warrior Princess comic books on Dynamite Entertainment, along with Daredevil 2018 Annual on Marvel. During our interview, we talked about surviving conventions, handling multiple projects at once, writing for classic characters but still making it your own, women writing women characters in comics, the diversity in characters in comic books, being vocal about your projects, the creator community, mentoring other creators, and the collaborative effort of making comics. Before we get into this interview with Erica Schultz, I definitely want to give a shout out to Knox Money, Bang Belushi, and Foulmouth for the theme music for Fresh of the Word. And I also want to remind you how you can support the podcast. You can always go to freshthepodcast.com and share any links of any of the episodes on any of your social media platforms. And also, you can subscribe to Fresh's Word pretty much anywhere that podcasts are streamed. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
Spotify, Podbean, pretty much everywhere. Just go there, hit uh, subscribe or whatever, follow. And if you want to leave a rating and review, that would be awesome, especially on Apple Podcasts. It would definitely help out this show. And also, you can uh, you can always email me at djkfresh at gmail.com if you have any information, questions, concerns, feedback, whatever. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at kfreshistheword and on Facebook at facebook.com slash kfresh. You can follow Fresh is the Word on Twitter at freshistheword, that's is, I-Z, and Instagram at freshistheword.podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash freshistheword.podcast. All right, let's get into the interview with Erica Schultz. The first time I met you was at the Motor City Comic Con, mm-hmm. and I I think by the time I like actually came to your booth and I was like so I was so numb from talking to people that I think I just looked at at, at like Twelve Devils Dance and it was just like, give me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that one. <laughs> that one, give me that. Like it's a donut shop. <laughs> it's it's funny and I tell everybody that, like everybody this that has that does the you know the convention circuits I'm like. Mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, I totally give it up to you to to everybody having to talk to so many people for one, two, three, four days, like all day. Yeah. Like I did like four hours of talking to a lot of people, and I like could barely spit out a word after that. It's you know what it is. It is frustrating because um, you don't get any time to rest in between. And a lot of times you just like want to get an extra hour of sleep or you want to, um, you know, get like that extra large tea with honey just to try to help your voice. Um, But there's really there's no time because you're either running to panels or you're running to man your table or whatever, you know, I mean, there's always something to do at a con and it's, it's crazy, but, um, you know, coming out and meeting fans and making new fans is, is really what it's, what it's all about. So, I mean, if all you could muster was give me that, then (laughs) I I hope you at least enjoyed it. (laughs) Oh, no, I definitely enjoyed it. And like, I totally understand like when, when comic book uh, creators or anyone who does like the big ones like New York Comic Con or San Diego mm-hmm. Comic Con, how they need like weeks after to sort of decompress. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And a lot of times when it's a lot of travel as well, that's that's tough too because, you know, planes and, you know, going and then meetings and you have to meet with people and yeah. It's nuts. Right. It's yeah, these days um you have you've had a few uh works uh, out there you've had you did the Daredevil uh, one shot, you had the mm-hmm. 12 Devils dancing, you did uh, the Xena Warrior Princess. You mm-hmm. know, how you know, how's it feel to have so many sort of like, you know, cooks in the fire, you know? Um I need more closet space. Is <laughs> <laughs> what it basically comes down to. Um it feels good. I mean, I I like working. Um I, I'm the type of person where if I'm not working, I kind of feel idle. And, uh, they, what's that phrase? Like idle hands is a devil's or idle mind is a devil's playground. Yeah. You know, so I, I like working. Um, I like writing a lot of stuff and, um, and when I'm not writing, I'm actually, uh, I'm editing indie books. Um, and I'm, uh, mentoring, uh, people and how to get their own books out and stuff like that. Um, so that sort of keeps me busy too. It keeps me out of trouble. 
when you're when you're doing when you're writing these iconic characters like a daredevil like a mm -hmm. xena what you know what do you do to sort of get in the mind of those characters to sort of make it true to their form but also kind of put your own spin to it well with um with xena i wasn't I was familiar with the character, but I wasn't really a fan of the show. So um, the previous writer, uh, Meredith Finch, was a huge fan of the show. So I read through Meredith's scripts to really get the voices of the characters because my my biggest um, my biggest thing is I want to get the characters' voices. I want the words that I write to be something that a huge fan is going to say, yes, that would come out of that person's mouth. Um, so to get dialogue and sort of voice cadence and things like that, uh, I read through Meredith's scripts. Uh, with Daredevil, it, the story is a Daredevil story, but it mostly focuses on Misty. Um, and I'm a, I love Misty Knight. I love Colleen Wing. Um, I'm really hoping for a Daughters of the Dragon show. Um, so I went back to some old Daughters of the Dragon, some old Iron Fist comics to really get the their original voice and then I added a little uh, um, a little Simone Missick who's the actress who plays uh, Misty on the Netflix shows okay. um, she has this great uh, attitude but also this great um, she has a confidence but she also has uh, this this great empathy and you know this warmth for people so I kind of wanted to get that in you know Misty is you know tough tough as nails cop, but she has this, this warmth for her with her, with the, especially with, uh, her partner, Carmen and Carmen's daughter, uh, Sophia. So I wanted to sort of bring that and make her a little more rounded, not just the tough cop, but right. the tough cop who cares about people, you know, and she cares about New Yorkers so much that she actually dislikes the capes dislikes the superheroes because she's like, you know, why aren't we enough? You know, we're trained, we're, right. we're good cops, we do our job, we don't need these people with masks coming in. Um, if they're heroes, why don't they show their faces? And if you remember in the original Civil War that came out, Misty was pro-registration. Right. So so I, I sort of wanted to keep that, but I, I try just try and get the voice of the characters. If it's If it's a character that has been on television or in movies. I sort of listen just to sort of hear the voice and see if it's really um, uh, uh, in line with a lot of the comics. And then I sort of use that as my, um, almost like my soundtrack to write to. Right, has there, has there been any time where you written for written a character and when you look back to what's already existed for this character, whether it has been in film, TV, or comic books, where you're like, okay, I don't know if I like that part of that person. Can we kind of smooth out the edges on it? Or, you know, what, you know, has that ever occur ha happened to you when sort of developing a story of your own? Well, when I was working on Hawkgirl for the DC um, New Talent Showcase, uh, the, the Hawkgirl's been around for 70 plus years. And she's been around in many different iterations. You know, Gardner Fox had retconned her himself multiple times. He was one of the creators of Hawkgirl and Hawkman. Um, so the the version of Hawkgirl that I that I loved the most 
not was not actually uh, the comic version. I mean, we have more recent one, but I'm talking multiple years ago. Was the version from the Justice League cartoon show? I thought that version was so. She was so badass. She was so cool. She was a cop. She was a soldier. She. she there was so much about her. There's so much depth to her, um, especially when they find out that she was actually like a double agent. Um, so I sort of I clung to that version of her when I was writing that story with Sunny Lou because that was, in my mind, the best version of her. Um, there's a new version out of her now that uh, Scott Snyder is working on with uh, Justice League and, 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 the, and the rest of the DC crew. Um, but I, you know, when she came, when, when she came from Thanagar and she, you know, becomes like a secretary for the, for the Justice Society, I mean, that, that, I didn't really like that version. I was never a huge fan of the whole reincarnation, Kendra Saunders. I mean, I like Kendra Saunders as a character, but that idea of like, Kendra isn't really Shaira. She's like the reincarnation of Shaira. Um, I thought that that was a little weird and <laughs> I didn't, I didn't think that that was, I know that that's what they, um, they were exploring in, uh, what's the show? Uh, legends. Uh, the, uh, is it legends? Is that um, what it's called? It's the, it's a CW show. Yeah. It's I, legends, right? Yeah. I think so. I think that's what was the name of it. Yeah. Cause I know, um, Kendra was in that version. Um, so, I mean, I was never a huge fan of the whole reincarnation thing. If you told me that Kendra was an alien or that Kendra came up, upon this alien tech, I'd be like, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so that was, that, I, that was just, you know, that's my own personal preference. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of these characters are so old. They've been through so many different, you know, writers, different artists, different redesigns. I was talking to somebody the other day who's a huge Daredevil fan and uh, he said to me, "Well, did you want him to be in the yellow and gold must uh, in the yellow and gold costume?" And I said, "No, because that's like the condiment costume. He's literally running around dressed as like ketchup and mustard. <laughs> no, no ketchup and mustard, please. I mean, because when you think about superheroes in general, it is kind of ridiculous the way they dress. Like if you just look at it from an extremely practical view." <laughs> It's very kind of ridiculous. Very ridiculous. You know, and you look at some of the original costumes. Like you look at Daredevil's original costume. It's like, what? <laughs> I'm supposed I'm supposed to be a ninja, yet I'm wearing bright yellow. Right. Kind of right. like kind of like when Robin had like the yellow cape. It's like you're wearing bright red, bright green, bright yellow, and you're supposed to be a ninja. Doesn't make sense. Nope. So so um but I mean, they play into that with Moon Knight because his whole idea is, you know, I want him to see me coming. That's why I'm wearing. Originally, he was wearing like a silver outfit, like a, a silver. Now it's white, but but this idea of yeah, like, I don't care if they see me coming. That's kind of the point. Right. But just in general, it, it is kind of ridiculous to have these people in these weird costumes and. I guess maybe it's like a shock and awe kind of thing. Like, hey, dude, what are you wearing? And then you get punched in the jaw. Right. Like. Hey, I'm wearing this really bright outfit, but you still couldn't see me, and I punched you in the jaw. You feel like yeah. an asshole now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> look how dumb you are. You got you got punched by somebody literally dressed in a clown suit. <laughs> right. right. As as a woman who has wrote all these different women characters, 
and to the fact that so many comic book women characters have been written by men for so long, what sort of aspects to these characters do you feel that you bring to them? Well, I can't say that I can, that I relate to them because, you know, they're also women because you're talking about like an alien, a woman who's in uh, ancient Greece. When I did Charmed, it's, you know, witches, you know, there's, there's a lot of different, um, you know, there's to say that only women can write women or, you know, only men can write men. I, I don't, completely agree with that. I think that with research and with, um, talking to people, you can sort of write anybody and that's kind of what you should be able to do as a writer. You should be able to put yourself in the shoes of whoever it is you're writing. Um, I, I think that I can write strong women and strong men. I mean, 12 devils dancing, you have a male and a female lead, but you know, the, the story mostly focuses on Callum, who's a a gay male. So putting myself in that position in order to write, I had many conversations with a lot of my friends who happen to be gay males about coming out about their childhood. Cause you know, there's that, um, that whole idea of as he's growing up, you know, being gay in the environment that he was growing up in was a very abusive environment. So talking to a lot of my gay male friends about that, you know, how did it feel when it, when you grew up? How did it feel when you came out to your friends, when you came out to your parents? When did you come out to your parents? Uh, and I had a friend who came out at a very young age. He was about 12 when he came out. Um, and it was, it was kind of a tumultuous time. So we had very frank discussions about that, about how he felt about it, about how his friends accepted him or didn't accept him, how his family accepted him or didn't accept him. Um, and so I, I use those, uh, those conversations and other people's experiences and, and them sharing that with me. And I try to make it as authentic. I try to make the character as authentic as possible. Um, I was very, I, I consider myself very lucky. I grew, I grew up in a very diverse town. I grew, I went to high school, uh, uh, middle school, very diverse school. So I grew up with all different types of people, all different religions, all different ethnicities, races, so when I was writing um, the character of Aisha, a young black woman, I called up some old friends from high school and said, you know, like, hey, how's it going? Listen, look, can we talk about, you know, what it was like when you first left high school and went to college or, you know, when you, you know, how would you, how would you react to a situation like this to make sure that the, the voice that I was giving that character was authentic? Right. When, when you're sort of, when you're writing, okay, as a whole, do you feel like in the comic book world, when it comes to the represent, representation of characters of different races, different genders, even different, you know, sexual orientations, do you feel like as a whole, they're being written well these days? Um, I think it depends. I think that it. I think that sometimes they're written really well and sometimes they're not written well. And it's not necessarily um, the writer's fault, but maybe they just didn't do enough research or didn't have enough experience with the people that they're supposed to be writing. Um, I, I love Ms. Marvel. I think Ms. Marvel is a terrific book. I think right. it has great, great representation. I think the characters are wonderful. Um, 
I think that um, I, I always loved Batman Beyond and um, between the cartoon show with uh, with Max, uh, Terry's best friend, and going further into the lore of Batman Beyond in the um, in the uh, uh, comics. So I think there's more representation in Batman Beyond. Uh, I think that we can. I think the biggest thing is that when people talk about representation in comics, they're talking about the big two. Yeah. And, and I get that that's, that's sort of the, the benchmark and the bar by which everyone sort of reaches for. But when you look at other comics, when you go beyond just the big two, there is so much representation in so many other books that I think that that they kind of sort of uh, become invisible because everybody's just thinking, you know, Storm, Ms. Marvel, Black Panther, Luke Cage. Um, they're just thinking about, you know, Ironheart. They're just thinking about those characters because they're in big two books as opposed to thinking about, oh, well, we've got um, we've got books coming out from Image Comics that have a whole wide range of characters of ethnicities books coming out from you know aftershock vault you know black mask um it, there's a great series that uh two friends of mine vita ayala and emily pearson do called the wilds and the most of the cast in that series are all people of color right and it's a great series but because it's not big two people don't really think oh well there's no you know there's not enough diversity well, then branch out from that. Yes, there needs to be more diversity, more diverse voices, more diverse characters in everything, including Big Two. But to say that Big Two doesn't have enough is kind of erasing the fact that other publishers, other creators are doing it. They're just not, they just don't have the, you know, Disney Warner Brothers behind them <laughs> to sort of, you know, billboard, you know, put up a billboard. But the books are out there. You just have to, you know, fans need to sort of give that little extra look. You know, when you go to the comic shop or you go to the website, don't just look at the Marvel or DC section. You know, see what the indies have. And, and you're going to be surprised. There are huge amounts of books out there that you didn't even know existed. And you're like, oh, my God, this is, a, this is the perfect character. I, I identify with this character. And this is something that I'm not going to find in a big two book. How do we sort of get beyond that looking at the only the, the big two only sort of mindset, because that's something that you you kind of get through all sorts of different uh, industries, whether it's the music industry or sports or whatever. There's always those like, uh, I'm only going to pay attention to the UFC because UFC is the only MMA uh, place, you know, when there's other really good organizations around the world or I'm only going to, you know, I only listen to pop music from the major labels, you know. How do you sort of, you know, get past that mindset of there's a lot of great books on these other and these other imprints out there? Um you have to be it's it's sad to say, but you really you have to be very vocal especially on social media now and be very vocal about your projects for the reasons that you want you want people to know about your projects, but, and this is where it gets kind of weird. And this is where that sort of like weird thing between what's commercial and what's art, you know, yeah. that kind of weird, like back and forth, um, always happens. So like case in point, um, 
I, I was interviewing with someone the other day and he's a huge Daredevil fan and he had never heard of me, never heard of any of my work. The way he learned about me was that he picked up the Daredevil annual because he picks up every Daredevil, saw my name, liked it, and then went searching for me. So then he started reading M3. He then he started reading 12 Devils. He started reading other books that I had done. But it was Daredevil. It was a big two book that was his sort of um, opening. For people who don't have that, for people who don't have a big two book, getting that wider audience, whether it's just writing an annual or a, a, you know, a, a short story or whatever, is sort of that opening. So you do all this wonderful indie work you finally get noticed by a big two editor, you do the one big two book, and then you just go back to doing indie work, but you hope that that big two book gets picked up by enough people that say, oh, I really like this, what else has this person done? Right. And so it's kind of like, you can't stay indie forever, because, I mean, do you, I, I don't know how old you are, but there's a musician named Ani DeFranco. Do you yes. know who she, okay. So Ani DeFranco is like, indie 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 constantly and has you know and i don't know if she still has her own label but at one point i believe she, still, she had her own label but it's like she only certain people know who she is because they make it a point to find the like super indie people and comics are kind of the same way like you were mentioning it it's the same thing with music comics are kind of the same way if you go out of your way to say i'm going to pick up image or i'm going to pick up black mask even you know books that are cuz image has a lot of big names on books there they also have a lot of lesser known names on books but a lot of a lot of the books coming out from image are from big names who are big two writers and creators so i think the fans really should open up and try to, to open up their, broaden their horizons. But also as a creator, you got to be loud and you've got to tell people about your book. And that to me personally is very uncomfortable. I don't like, I don't like being on social media and saying, buy my book because it's like, Oh, I feel gross saying that, you know, just like when I go to convention I feel weird being like, hey, come and, buy, come and check out my books. Like, I feel, feel weird like that. Right. But there's no other way to do it. You know what I mean? It's this, it's this really weird spot that you, it's like, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it because if I don't do it, I'm not going to get more work and people aren't going to read my stuff and say, hey, I liked that. I want to read more. What more is, is she doing? You know, what more is this writer doing? What more is this artist doing? So you kind you have to promote yourself. And another thing is that a lot of indie creators, we want to promote each other. Like I'm talking about Vita and, and Emily, their book, The Wild. Yeah. Um, we want to promote each other. We want to, Vita's actually doing a book with another artist named Liana Kangas uh, for Black Mask. Um, you're familiar with the series Black from Black Mask, correct? Yeah. Okay, well, they're doing a spinoff series called Devil's Die that is within... The black, uh, the black universe, and so that's another book that I think indie creators have to sort of shout the names of other indie creators, and it's kind of this thing like let's bring each other up because like one person being a loudmouth isn't going to do <laughs> the job. We kind of all have to sort of like help each other out. So, um, so I try to do that as well too. 
Yeah, as somebody that like me that's been a part of the music scene for so mm-hmm. long here in Detroit that I I first started I kind of started heavily going into comic book conventions and stuff like that for the past year or so. That's something that I noticed through all the the creators that I've uh, met, you know, in the artist alley section is that they definitely there is a community and they do like shout out everybody else that mm-hmm. that they believe in and so like that community aspect is definitely important for everybody definitely and and it also and it, it helps with camaraderie you know and you can also bounce ideas off of each other and you can also um say to somebody hey would you mind looking at this script for me and things like that and it and it helps because we comics is and like music and like any creative endeavor, you're putting so much of yourself into it um, that it's tough and you need a very strong support system. Um, I'm very, very lucky that my husband is incredibly emotionally supportive. He's a creative person himself and he's incredibly emotionally supportive. And I have some very good friends that are very emotionally supportive of this crazy you know, lifestyle that I live. Um, so having more creators that are that are, you know, on this journey with you helps because they understand, you know, if you say to somebody who doesn't know anything about comics, well, you know, my, my pitch got waitlisted instead of greenlit, they're kind of like, huh, I don't, I don't get it. Like, (laughs) what do you mean? But you say that to somebody who's in the industry, they're like, Hey man, it's cool. It's better than them just straight, straight up saying, Hey, no, you know, so you still got time, you know, go back to the pitch and try and refine it. Give them, give them more details on it, you know, um, blow it out a bit, give them, give them more of an outline versus, you know, quick paragraph about what the pitch is. You know, you have the ability to talk to people that know exactly what you're going through because they've been through it themselves. Right. How do you deal with, uh, having to be a bit of an extrovert when you kind of want to like not be that? Um, fake it till you make it. (laughs) It's the best thing I can say. Um, no, I'm very introverted, uh, in the sense that with people that I'm comfortable with and with friends, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wild, I'm crazy. But with, when you're meeting strangers, you know, every day of a four day weekend, it can get a little weird. Um, I think though, I try and realize, I try and, and, and keep in my mind that every single person out there, you, me, you know, Joe at the corner store, you know, whomever, everybody's got their own, every, I, part of my French, everyone's got their own shit. Everyone's right. got their own baggage. And if you approach every interaction like that, then it makes things a little more understanding. Like, so sometimes I go to cons and sometimes people can be kind of crass and rude because I'm a woman and they don't think that women write comics. Okay, fine. And I shrug it off and I'm like, you know what? That dude's a jerk. At the same time, I could just be like, you know what? He could also, I mean, yes, he might be straight up a jerk or he might be having just a really crappy day. Yeah. So he's having a really crappy day. Screw it. Don't let it bother you. Don't let it make your day crappy. And, um, and that's also where it's really good to have friends in comics because if, you know, you have a garbage interaction like that, you can always, you know, slough off to somebody else's table and just be like, Hey man, this guy was such a jerk. And they'd be like, Oh man, you know, it's screw him. Don't worry <laughs> about it. You know, go back, sell some more books, you know, kind of thing. Um, 
so that's that's why the community is is really it's good to be there for each other too because we're, we're all going to find you know dumb interactions we're all going to have you know but I, like i said i mean if you think about it everybody's got their own stuff going on and you know that that sort of helps but there are still people that are just straight up jerks anyway <laughs> <laughs> right what kind of conversations do you have with people when you're at comic cons um, most people want to know how it is that I got into comics, um, not, you know, being a fan of them, but got into writing comics. Um, a lot of times people will ask, um, you know, like what, what do you, what do you, how do you train to be a comics writer? Um, or how do you, uh, you know, what, is there any schooling that I can go to, to be a comics writer? Um, I didn't go to schooling to be a comics writer. I, I went to, I have a degree in literature and, um, and in uh, education. And I ended up being a comics writer because I ended up working as a, uh, an art director and Photoshop artist at a studio that happened to do comics. And by being exposed to comics that way, I then decided I was going to write my own scripts and pitch them as comics. Um, but there are now classes that you can take that sort of teach you how to write comics. You can go online. There's a website called Comics Experience. You can go online and take classes. You can go and um, look at sample scripts from other writers that have been published and, you know, see how they work things out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the biggest question I get is how, do, how you know, what did you do to fall into this very sort of niche place? And you mentioned this earlier, and I think we pretty much covered a lot of stuff you you might even say, but you said you mentor a lot of other creators. You know, what do you uh, talk about? And, you know, what do you talk about with these people that you're mentoring? Um, a lot of it is um, there's like a technical aspect to it where you're looking over a script and you say, you know, you've got more than one action in a panel, you know, and that's, that's one big thing. A lot of people want to say that, um, writing comic scripts is like writing screenplays and that's not entirely true. There is a, there is a difference because when you're writing screenplays, you can talk about, you know, this person throws that person and then that person falls into the wall. Whereas in a comic script, you can't do that in one panel. Um, you really want to be able to, break your actions, one action per panel. Um, so a lot of it is, is breaking people of that idea that there's, <coughs> excuse me, that there's more, um, that you can do more in a panel than you really should. Um, another thing is, uh, sometimes writers are very, um, they have a lot of ownership over the material and, they kind of want the artist to basically just, you know, do what's in my head. It's in my head. I just want you to draw it and sort of discount the collaborative process that comics really are. Um, comics are a collaboration. They're not just a uh, writer and artist and everyone working separately. Everyone has to work together. So reminding people of that. Um, also just being the, the support system, you know, like we were talking before about, supporting people and, and, you know, Hey, so your pitch didn't get greenlit, but you know, let's, let's go back and look at the pitch again and see what we can do to tweak it, to make it a little more, um, a little more, uh, uh, 
explanatory uh, to, you know, if the, the crit came back and the editor said, well, we, we had some questions about this character or, you know, this situation or something like that. Okay, good. We have guidance. Let's go back. Let's look at it. Let's see if we can find a way to answer those questions and things like that. Talk more about the collaborative process in your own works with the editors and the people to do the artwork. Um, well, I've worked with all different kinds of artists. Um, some artists don't want a full script where they just sort of want almost like an outline and will work from that. Other artists want full script where they want to see panel breakdowns. They want to see specific things like that. Um, some artists are just say, look, you know, I'm just gonna, this is a job. It's work for hire. I'm, I'm just doing this for a paycheck kind of thing. So draw, you know, if you want something drawn, you got to tell me to draw it. So, uh, you know, if you want, if you want to make sure you have continuity in that book, then you basically have to repeat every panel before in order to make sure that there's continuity in that story. Um, and other artists are just very collaborative. You know, you sit down and you actually work through, you know, you might write a rough script, but then you sit down with the artist and you work through what it is the layout's going to be and say, you know, well, we've got, you know, maybe we do five panels on this page, but then we do like a splash the next one versus doing, you know, six panels on one page, you know, we blow this out and, or we, we give this a little more air or, um, you know, cause, cause we were saying, you know, writing for television or writing for screenplays, you, you, when you're writing for television, you write for the commercial break. Whereas, you know, that mini cliffhanger, but in comics, you write for the page turn. Right. So, um, and it's, it's interesting. I have a friend who's a producer who was saying that when Netflix and all of these shows came out that a had no commercial breaks and B were all binge worthy, the pacing of the shows became very different and writers writing these shows and these types of shows would have to sort of check themselves on what the pacing would be because there's no commercial breaks in a Netflix show. You know, there's no commercial breaks in, uh, or there's, you know, you're not waiting for a week to see the next show. You're going to see it right then and there. Right. You know, you're going to hit that, you know, next episode button. Um, and that's, and that's very interesting because, you know, it's changed the way people pace shows because if you know that you have 13 episodes coming out all at once, then you can take your time on some stuff. But if you have 13 episodes that are kind of come out weekly, then if you do some slow character development, audiences might get bored and they might be like, eh, you know what? They've taken too long, you know, on Joe. So <laughs> let's, you know, screw it. I'm not going to watch this the next week. Right. You know, but if you can hit that next button, then you know that the action is going to come. Do you know what I mean? Right, definitely. During this whole collaborative effort uh, on, you know, making these, uh, working with other people, what, you know, I know I was gonna, what I was going to say. How important is it for every collaborator and collaboration, everybody collaborating on these projects, for them to be open-minded? Oh, it's very important because, um, you have to respect what the other people in the teams are bringing together. So 
I've worked as a writer, an artist, a letterer, an editor. Uh, I've done the book design. I've done layout. I've done production. I've done pretty much a little bit of everything. Um, so I know what other, what the other team members are going through. Um, people who are strictly one thing or another don't necessarily have that insight. And so like if you're a new writer and you don't really understand what an artist brings to it, you might be frustrated or you might keep sending pages back because you're saying, no, 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 you're not drawing what I want without realizing that the artist has a reasoning for doing what they did. You know, um, when I did M3 with the Sensei Alcazar, the first thing I said to him was, look, you've been doing this. It was the first book I'd ever written. And I said, you've been doing this a whole lot longer than I have. Um, if I write on a page that five panels, you know, anywhere from four to six panels is kind of average for a page. So if I say yeah. five, five panels on a page and you can accomplish this information, this communication of what's happening on this page in four panels, do it in four. If you need six, do it in six. The idea is to just, this is the information of this particular scene that we want to communicate. We want to communicate the emotional situ you know, the emotional, um, bond between these two characters or the emotional, you know, hate between these two characters, depending what it is. You know, we want to ca capture, we want to have enough room for all the dialogue. Um, and that's another thing is that, um, writers don't, writers who've never lettered before don't know how much it is to letter dialogue. And television and film can be very talky. There can be a lot of dialogue. Right. And that can be very, very difficult for letterers. When I was, um, I lettered, there was a, a, a crossover series called Swords of Sorrow uh, back in 2015 that uh, Gail Simone asked me to be one of the writers on, which was lovely because I got to meet G. Willow Wilson and Gail and um, Mirka Andolfo and, and Margaret Scott and uh, Emma Beebe and Nancy Collins, Mickey Kendall, like so many really great, talented women. Um, and I had asked to letter my own book and I ended up lettering the entire crossover. And it was crazy because there was so much going on that there were times that, and because there were all these crossover books, there were things that you had to reference that weren't other books. There was so much dialogue in some of these books that it was really, really tough to letter some of them because, I mean, I was like finding the most creative and sometimes uncreative ways to just get everything in um, because it was, there was just a lot. And some, I mean, and Gail's obviously a very experienced writer. Um, and I think the, the biggest issue was that we had to reference all these other books because it was a 21 issue crossover. Um, but some of the writers didn't really understand that, you know, you can't put this much on one panel. 
you know, I mean, like there's there there will be no artwork seen <laughs> if you put this much on one panel. Um, I know when I worked on Revenge for uh, Marvel, it was a, an original graphic novel based on the ABC television series, and it was a uh, it was a prequel to the first season of the ABC series, and the um, producers of the television show were reading the scripts. I had an editor at Marvel and then the producers were looking at it and the producers kept saying, you know, you don't write enough dialogue, Erica. Um, you're very economical. That was the phrase that they used is you are very economical with your dialogue. And I said, well, because you're going to cover up all the artwork. And it was kind of a back and forth. And so I said, all right, let's put in all the dialogue that you guys really want. And then it was, we can't see the artwork. Bingo. <laughs> you know, because I had worked as a letterer and having been a letterer, I knew that there was, there's like a threshold that you, that you meet and you can go below that threshold and, and have silent panels or you could have, you know, just a word or two. And that's perfectly fine too. But when you have this, you know, giant long, you know, like Dr. Doom pontification in one panel. And it's like one panel on a six panel page. It's like, how, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> There's so much more that we have to do accomplish. So I think, I do think that every, um, that every professional should walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Like I do think every artist should letter, every artist should write, every letterer should write, every letterer should draw, every writer should draw and letter, you know, just so you can get a little taste of what the other people do. And I think that if you do that, you'll realize, you'll, first of all, you have way more respect for your collaborators. You should have respect for your collaborators in the first place, but you'll understand when your collaborators push back, it's, they're not pushing back because, you know, they, um, they're, you know, crapping on your vision. No, they're pushing back because probably what you're asking them to do is not in the best interest of the book. And you have to trust your collaborators. You have to trust that they know what they're doing. And you have to trust that, um, if you're not an artist and you're like strictly a writer, never, never drew, never lettered, never anything, you have to trust that they know what they're doing. The other thing is, it's just comics. Let's be honest. The fate of the world is not going <laughs> to, you know, right. if, if you're putting out an indie book and there's, um, and you, you know, you're, you're fighting over something, you know, really minor in a book, then look, this, the world is not going to stop spinning because it's like a ketchup bottle instead of a hot sauce bottle or vice versa, you know? Unless there's a plot point where someone grabs the hot sauce and throws it in someone's face and blinds them with the hot sauce versus taking a ketchup bottle and blinding them with ketchup, you know, unless there's a huge plot point, that's not going to matter. Right. Do you know what I mean? And as creators, we get so, we drink our own Kool-Aid so much. We really do. And we, we get so into this, well, I'm an artiste and I created this and this is my vision and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I get it. I understand that. At the same time, 
there are other people that are here that are trying to not just help you create your vision, but make it even better. And you got to respect that. And you got to, you've got to really, um, understand where your collaborators are coming from. And I think that's the number one thing that new creators have a problem with is they don't understand the collaboration of it. And that's where TV comes in because a lot of TV is written in a writer's room and it's multiple people and people are like, you know, riffing on ideas and things like that. So if you have like a TV writer background, you kind of have a little sense of that to begin with. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I ramble. I know I ramble. Sorry. It's all good. You've already kind of, uh, started on it, but how do you, personally handle conflict with your collaborators i kill them <laughs> no oh, they're all um, bad. i well i choose a lot of collaborators based on personality um i don't just like i don't i don't just see somebody's work and then say oh my god they're an amazing artist i want to work with them no i talk to them and i because there are people that are phenomenal artists, but their personality might not gel with me. Right. Um, and so I want to talk to them. I want to see if we, if we gel on a personal level, I was very lucky when, um, Liana Kangas and I, uh, worked together on a short story for where we live, which was the anthology from image comics that the money went to the victims of the Las Vegas shooting. Um, I had written a very personal story about my father and my relationship with him and his relationship with guns. And Liana had, um, a similar, but you know, specific relationship with her dad that when we talked about, I had written the script and I didn't know who the artist was going to be. And she and I had spoken, our, our dads passed away in, in very close to each other in terms of, um, you know, within like a year or two of each other. And so we had discussed, you know, the, the passing of our fathers and having this complicated relationship. And so I had written this script and I, and I gave it to her to read. And she said, I would love to do this. And, um, and she brought the script that I had written, she brought it to life, but then she also was able to add her own twist to it to show that it really was, it wasn't just my story or just her story. It was our story. Um, and the character of the father was literally, it was a physical amalgam of our two fathers. Like I, she sent uh, me photos of her dad. I sent her photos of my dad and we made the character look like our two dads, like together. Okay. Uh, she, and she really did an amazing job. Um, I'm for the most part, I'm a pretty easygoing person. So I, I kind of, you know, and like I said, the fate of the world isn't on whether or not this panel has six people in it or five people in it. Uh, so I, I pretty much make it, I pretty much, you know, just say, okay, well, you know, that's the way so-and-so had drawn it. We'll make it work. Um, very rarely do I ask for something to be redrawn. But that's also where it comes to, um, that's when it comes to, you know, the process, like when you're working with your artist, does your artist send you rough layouts? 
Because if your artist sends you layouts, then that's a good way to make any changes because they're very rough. They're just like quick lines on a page. And you can tell a lot of storytelling in a layout. So if there's something that needs to change, that's the time to do it. When someone has done final line art and it's already been colored, that's not the time to go back and say, oh, you know what? I kind of want to change their face here. <laughs> um, so understanding the process. Um, I, like I said, I, I've been very fortunate to have worked in every aspect, every step of the way with comics. So because of that, um, artists tend to like working with me because I, I know what they're going through. Um, at the same time, if artists aren't writers themselves, then they kind of, they, they might turn around and be like, oh, well, the writer's just sitting on their ass doing nothing. It's not exactly the truth. You know, because we're looking at the art, and if the art is different from what we wrote, then we got to look at the dialogue, and if the, then the dialogue needs tweaks, or we have to maybe add a line, because, um, you know, something wasn't drawn that was originally in the the script, but it is a specific plot point, so you have to add a dialogue line to be able to cover that, and, you know, it's it's complicated and simple at the same time, if that's possible. Right. <laughs> To uh, kind of wind down this interview, uh, what's the future have in store for you? Well, Liana Kangas and I are going to be working, when she's done working on um, uh, Devil's Die with uh, Vida Ayala for Black Mask, we're going to be working on a project together that's not been announced yet. Um, I am going to be working with Claire Connolly again. She and I worked on uh, Cheese and Churchill together. We also worked on um, a few... Um, anthologies, uh, most notably This Nightmare Kills Fascists. Um, we're going to be putting out a new book called Eve the Immortal Lobster. We're going to be doing a Kickstarter early next year for it. It's going to be full color, and we are going to release it with Cheese and Churchill, also in full color, because the originals were black and white. I'm going to be working with Emily Pearson on a um, non-announced yet project coming up. And, uh, yeah, that's about it for now. Oh, and 12 Devils Dancing, the trade paperback, comes out on the 21st of November. And it has a cover by the incomparably talented uh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Awesome. I always like to uh, end my interviews with asking the same question, and I give it to you ahead of time to think about. Mm -hmm. Who is somebody that's been a part of your life or career would, that would ha that I could realistically interview that would have their own good stories or lessons to talk about? Honestly, the, the person that I know who was the best storyteller ever was my grandfather, and unfortunately he's passed. He, um, he was in World War II, and he spent five and a half years in the European theater um, in World War II and was uh, an immigrant from Italy and, you know, was just, uh, had these amazing stories and he always found a way to take something that was so tragic like the war and find something that was hopeful, um, find something that was funny and things like that. So he would be a great person to talk to. Uh, unfortunately, he's not around just because, um, you know, 
old age hits you. <laughs> um, actually, he would have. I had uh, tweeted out about him on uh, September 30th because September 30th of this year would have been his 100th birthday. Right. And uh, but he was always very supportive of me, no matter what. Um, I remember I had gotten into an argument in my early in my career. I had had a job at an ad agency, and I got into an argument with my boss, and it got kind of heated. And I left work that day thinking, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. It's going to happen. And I had already scheduled to have dinner with, with uh, Imenoni, with my grandparents. Um, and I remember sitting there eating dinner, and my nonno says to me, he's like, what is wrong with you? Like, you, there's, you're so distracted and whatever. And I sat, and I just broke down. I said I had a huge fight with my boss. It got heated. It wasn't. A pleasant experience and I'm gonna lose my job I'm gonna lose my job I'm not gonna be able to pay my student loans like you know ah, you know whatever everything is gonna be crazy and my grandfather just looks at me and he puts his hand across the table and he touches my hand and he says you're gonna be okay we're gonna figure it out everything will be fine I, I doubt you'll get you'll get fired because you're good at your job but even if you do you'll figure it out and you're gonna be fine we'll make sure you're gonna be okay and he just had that ability to just take you from your, you know, your hysterical state of, you know, everything is going wrong, nothing is going to be all right, and just say, no, it'll be okay. <laughs> and he used to always tell me that I took myself too seriously. He used to always say, he goes, Erica, you take yourself way too seriously. Like, it's it's not that important. And And later in life, as I've gotten older, I've realized, you know, hey, the earth isn't going to stop spinning on its axis if there's a typo in your comic book. You know, if there's 70 typos and the lettering looks like garbage and, you know, then okay, then you might want to rethink your, uh, your career. <laughs> but the earth is still going to spin on its axis. The sun's still going to rise the next day. You know, right. Thing, you know there's going to be another day. And, uh, and as I've gotten older, that's, that's a lesson that I, that I've learned from him and that I've, I've, I've heard over, like, I hear his, his voice in my head saying, you're taking yourself a little too seriously, Erica. <laughs> and then, and then I sort of have to take a step back and big coat and say, okay, no, no. Like, I know, I know you're still around because I can hear that voice. Um, so yeah, so I would I I wish he was around for lots of reasons, but I think he would have had a, a great conversation with him, just because he would tell you he and he would probably tell you funny stories about me as a little kid. Oh, nice! You know, doing something stupid <laughs> as a little kid, you know, running around and like you know doing something just dumb, because <laughs> that's what little kids do. Yeah, that's what little kids do. You know, yeah. So. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, yeah, before we get out of here, uh. First, I got to say, I love your Instagram. Oh, it's just photos of my cat. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, there's there's a lot of I don't I don't care what side of the fence people are on, but there is you know, something that is undeniable is there's a lot of unrest right now in this world. And rather than feed into that unrest, I figure I've got a fat cat who has a shoe fetish. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to post photos of my cat sleeping on shoes and like loving on shoes because that's what he does. I love it. 
that's <laughs> basically all he does. I have a pair of shoes in the corner of my office that I'm not allowed to move or wear because <laughs> when he's done sleeping in the closet, he gets up, you know, goes 10 feet to his water bowl and food bowl and then goes the ne next 10 feet into my office to then sleep again on the <laughs> shoes. Because in the closet, he has a pair of shoes that he sleeps on, and then he has a pair of shoes that he sleeps on in my office, which is next to the, to the bedroom where he sleeps in the closet. Because, you know, the only time he can be awake is at 4 o'clock in the morning. Of course. That's when all cats are awake. <laughs> yeah, he's awake from, like, 2.30 to, like, 7.30. And then it's just sleep. <laughs> and that's it. You ever and wonder if like cats are like signaling to each other in the middle of the night or something? I don't know. <laughs> I, I do know that there's something that's like a cat that's getting into my yard and, you know, pooping in my yard. And it's happening in the neighbors, too, because the neighbor, when we first moved into this house, the neighbors turned and said, oh, you have a cat. Does your cat go out? And we're like, no, he doesn't. He literally sleeps in the closet all day. And they're like, oh. And I think it's because whatever's crapping in my yard is crapping in their yard, too. And they thought that it was our cat. And I'm like, no, really. He, he doesn't even go down the stairs. He just <laughs> stays on the top floor. Doesn't even go down the stairs. <laughs> Because he's fat and his belly rubs on the stairs. He doesn't like the feeling of his belly rubbing on the stairs. We figured it out. We, we took him downstairs and he ran up the stairs. And I, as I'm watching him go upstairs, I'm like, oh, my God, his belly is rubbing up against the stairs. That's how fat he is now. <laughs> and my husband's like, that's probably why he doesn't like going up and down the stairs because his belly's getting rubbed. So I'm hoping that he loses a little weight. And then gets down the stairs because I'm sick of constantly having to go up the stairs with food. Like, it's like breakfast in bed for this one. <laughs> so spoiled. <laughs> he is spoiled. He's insanely spoiled. But I love him. I, and, and, you know, I, and that's another thing that I post a lot about is about, like, uh, adopting pets from shelters. You know, if, if people have room in their heart in their home and in their budget because cats and dogs can be expensive so make sure that you can afford it yeah. but going to a shelter and picking up a pet is undeniably life-changing it really is and if people if you have the opportunity to do it i highly suggest you do it because right. nothing is more calming than literally lying on the floor on my closet floor and petting him and listening to him purr yeah. there's something like so calming about that just that's just like hum of purring and you're just like oh man you're so soft you're so fat and so soft and so squishy oh this is lovely so yeah so that is like my big like my big push like bob barker you know get your cat spayed and neutered and and go and get a shelter animal so uh, i love it i love it uh before we get out of here where can people go online to uh, check out the things that you're working on or any news in regards to anything you're working on? Okay. Well, um, I'm on Twitter at Erica Schultz 42. Um, my Instagram and website are the same. They are Erica Schultz writes. So on Erica Schultz writes, I usually have a list of all my, um, when I'm going to uh, signings and conventions and things like that. 
And uh, my Instagram literally is just photos of the cat. So if you want to see a big fat gray and white cat, go to that. Um, and basically, I just uh, I chat a lot on Twitter about um, when my books are coming out. And so 12 Devils Dancing it will be in stores on the 21st. All right. Great. It's been great talking with you. Uh, Thank you so for, much, Kelly. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time out to uh, chat with me. All right. That was my interview with Erica Schultz. Uh, you can always go to our website, which is ericaschultzwrites.com, for more information about what she's up to. And she has a store on her website where you can purchase a lot of her, uh, her, uh, her books and her uh, titles. So uh, and more information about Erica Schultz is in the show notes for this podcast episode at freshthepodcast.com. All right, that's another episode in the books. Thanks for listening. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.